I'll see you. Nice to see all of you again. As I was gone for Thanksgiving break, uh, missed you all. And uh, as you're flipping to 2 Timothy chapter uh, 4, I had a sweet time at uh, New Horizon Christian Fellowship last week in Klamath Falls. It's where we usually fellowship when we're down in Klamath with my in-laws. And it was so great to just go and spend time with the saints down there. You know, fleshly gratification seems to be what Thanksgiving can often drift towards. And so to just curve back and, and focus on Jesus, that was like a sweet drink of water to me last Sunday. And, and it's good to come back again at the, at the uh, first of the week, isn't it, here? In Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, why don't we stand together? I said chapter 4, but we're going to go back to chapter 3 so we can get some context getting into chapter 4 here. And let me read this section of scripture, chapter 3, verse 14 through chapter 4, verse 5. It says, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you've known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires. Because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Lord, here we are in this pastoral epistle, going many weeks into these pastorals that I'm sure for some here seem a bit distant to their own life situation. They're not pastors and and some of them aren't even in ministry in any capacity. And yet you have given every saint the book. You've given us this text so that we may know, Lord, your heart for the church. So that we may know how we ought to conduct ourselves in the household of God as we learn in 1 Timothy. And then as we're in 2 Timothy, that we could hear from Paul's final words just what every pastor should be majoring in as Timothy was to be majoring in. A, a culture of idolatry and moral failure. We pray today, Lord, over Calvary Chapel, Lord, that you would just awaken our hearts, Lord. Give us a jolt, Lord, that would waken us up to all that you have for us, Lord. That you could protect us, Lord, that you would keep us on the straight path. And Lord, that we could be effective as a church in ministering to one another and displaying the gospel to the world. 
Lord, speak through me. Lord, I feel rusty even after one week away. Lord, I feel weak. I feel scattered. And I just pray that you, by your spirit, would just demonstrate all your heart for us in the text today. Bring it to bear on our hearts and, and change us to be conformed to the image of Christ as your word is taught, as your word is preached. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. You know, if the chapter divisions were not here in our Bibles, we wouldn't be distracted from seeing the logical progression of 2 Timothy. That's why we read the end of chapter 3 going into chapter 4. That progression is that we ought to have a high view of the Bible as our four-week series uh, in the last few weeks have taught us. That the, the Bible is God-breathed. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Holy men of God were moved as they were carried along by the Spirit. And that had implications from it, as we saw. That, that, that the Bible not only is inspired, but it is inerrant. And not only is it inerrant, but there's proper interpretation that ought to be worked through it. There, there's also the inclusion of the Bible, the canon uh, what books are, are canonical, are authoritative, are the standard. Um, and so we looked at those things, and it, and it fostered again a high view of the book, a high view of the Bible, uh, a lofty value of the Scripture. And so we have that from chapter 3, verses 14 through 17, and that goes right into chapter 4, verse 1, that we ought to then have a high view of biblical preaching. That's something that we value as a church. We value biblical, spirit-empowered preaching. Sadly, though, within the church today, many churches that hold to the inerrancy of Scripture and the inspiration of Scripture, they're not preaching the Scripture. They might be preaching, they might be teaching, but it's not rooted in the Bible. And so something that, praise the Lord, God has led us to is a very good approach of preaching the word, as verse 2 says, and that is expositional preaching or expository preaching. Have you guys ever heard that phrase before, expository preaching? Ex means to draw out from. So we just go to the book and we draw out of the book. Expository preaching is word-driven preaching. Okay, Bring your Bibles to Calvary Chapel. Don't get lazy with the screens up here because sometimes those things fail us. All right, Bring your Bible. Be familiar with your Bible. Know where things are. Be able to flip to things quickly. And so we teach and preach from the Word here at Calvary. Expository preaching is preaching in such a way that the main point of the passage is is the main point of the sermon. It's taking the listeners for what's been called a, a swim in the Bible. So wear your swim trunks and your swim cap and your glasses and one of those nose plugs, you know, as you, as you come to Calvary Chapel because we're going to go swimming in the Bible. And so it's important that we're in the Bible, that we're preaching the Bible, that we're receiving from the Bible. As the end of chapter 3 tells us that it brings the man of God to maturity. Scripture is the chief means that God employs to mature us and grow us up 
as Christians, to do that work of preparing us for every good work. You know, the Anglicans, whenever they are ordaining a pastor, a a preacher, they have a prayer book that they read through, and they read and ask this question, this charge to the new pastor. Here's the question. Are you persuaded that the Holy Scriptures are sufficient for the work of salvation in the life of God's people? Are you determined to instruct the people out of the scriptures to instruct the people committed to your charge? I think that's a wonderful charge to pastors. Are you committed to instructing the people, not from your opinion, not from the worldview of the day, not from the latest best-selling book from the pastor, you know, from the megachurch, Are you going to preach the word? Are you going to preach the Bible? That's why we're committed to it week after week. And we ask ourselves the questions, what will happen to a culture, to a church, or to an individual that neglects the studying, the reading, the hearing from through preaching and teaching? What happens when we neglect the word of God? On a congregational level, A church will be utterly incompetent and fundamentally useless from its foundation on. The individual would run all over the place trying to find teachers that will scratch their itching ears. We're neglecting the word of God. And as a culture, we'll see a culture that doesn't even know how to be saved. We don't know how to be redeemed. We don't know how to have this dilemma with sin fixed. And so we try to find man-made systems and works of our own flesh that'll get us there. All of those end in our own detriment. And so we want to pray like John Wesley used to. At any price, give me the book, oh God. Let me be a man of one book. So we have a high value of the scripture, and we preach that scripture. Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon called Christ and His Co-Workers back in 1886. And he, he coined this phrase, let out the lion, or let the lion out. Listen to what he says in this little paragraph from this sermon. A great many learned men are defending the gospel. No doubt. It is a very proper and right thing to do. Yet I always notice that when there are most books of that kind, it's because the gospel itself is not being preached. Suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion, a full-grown kind of beast. There he is in the cage, and here come all of the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I should suggest to them, if they would not object and feel that it was very humbling to them, that they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself. And the best apology or defense for the gospel is to let the gospel out. Never mind about defending Deuteronomy or the whole of the Pentateuch. Preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let the lion out. 
and see who will dare to approach him. The lion of the tribe of Judah will soon drive away all his adversaries. We don't need to defend the bulldog of the gospel. Just unleash it. Let him off his chain. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Let out, let, let, let out the lion. Amen? Preach the word. Let the lion out. So in the conclusion of chapter 3, this great you know, statement on the origin of the scripture that it is given by inspiration and what it is profitable for. Paul wasn't telling Timothy anything he didn't know. Of course, Timothy knew that the Bible was God-breathed, that it was inspired, that it was profitable. This guy had been a pastor for a while. He'd been in the persecution. He, he was aware. And so Paul wasn't giving Timothy anything he didn't know, but rather he was reminding him of something that he ought never forget. Don't ever forget the value of the Bible. In the midst of moral and doctrinal confusion there in Ephesus, which I would say is very nearly the same today uh, in our culture and in our time, as we teach on these two fronts, moral and doctrinal dilemma, what we should believe and what it should lead us as far as behavior goes. And so there's this charge in verse 1 getting to our text today. The word charge, and, and I probably misunderstand this just in my, in my first reading sometimes because I just picture, you know, a knight in shining armor with the jousting pole, you know, and he's going for it, you know. He's, he's charging, and, and, you know, I always just pictured that narrow focus in the charge with the pole taking out the enemy, you know, uh, and yet that may not be exactly what Paul has in mind. There is the charge. There is the go for it. But there's this solemn testifying, a solemn warning, some emphatic utterance here towards Timothy. Now remember, these are some of Paul's last words. Paul knows that he's going to meet the end very soon. And so I would just urge you, congregation, to open up your ears to hear some of Paul's final words and, and to ask, what is the importance of this to Timothy hearing from his mentor who's on his way out and to us in our day, knowing where we are, knowing our conundrum, wondering what we're called to as a church, is there anything for us? As Paul charges Timothy, listen to this crazy, this stunning, stunningly crazy phrase that it's before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. You know, we have a whole lot of things that, you know, we hear our friends swearing by, you know, uh, or something that would bring importance to the, the statement they would utter. You know, on my grandma's grave or something like that, by great Odin's beard, you know, whatever, you know. And here it's like it doesn't get any more. Nowhere else in scripture does it get as stunning as this, I am charging you, preacher boy, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who's going to come back, he's going to judge the living, and you think because you're dead you're going to get out of judgment? Oh no, there's even judgment for the dead when he appears because he's coming back and he's bringing his kingdom with him. Whew. 
boy, whatever you've got to say, Paul, I'm all ears. Because this is apparently this is pretty, this is more than grandma's grave sort of thing, you know. This is before God, before the Messiah, before the, the coming and the victory. So here's the charge. First of all, it is a solemn charge. It's a charge that tells the minister that he will be judged. That there is judgment involved here. One of my life passages as a pastor has been Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. And it goes two ways. It goes, hey, all of you, obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls, right? And it brings me back to when I was a high school pastor, and I had this this kid who... I inherited, when I became the high school pastor in Corvallis, this kid was from the previous high school pastor, and then he merged into my ministry, and he loved the last guy, couldn't stand me. And so he was this kid that was into the theater, he only spoke in a Scottish accent for some reason, in fact, he works with Hollywood now, he's actually, we're buddies, he's very, he's doing a great job, he's in commercials and all this, and, and he's always a Scottish guy in the commercials, but that's neither here nor there. And I used to be preaching and teaching, and he'd sit in the back, and he'd be like, bah, ha, 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 ha. You know, and it just, ah, oh, man, this, and just, there was always just this friction. And I finally just said, hey, man, let me just quote from, from Hebrews to you. Like, there needs to be, like, a submissive heart there. There needs to be some obedience. I'm a guy that's watching out for your soul, for your eternity, So let me do it with joy and not with grief. Because if you're going to constantly have me in a place of grief, that's going to be unprofitable for you. Okay? So now all of this to say, for the minister, there's actually an account that they will give before the Lord in this. They need to know the state of their flock. Nonetheless, in in the aspect of the preaching, as James would even say, not, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that you shall receive the stricter judgment. The reformer John Knox had such a good, healthy fear of the Lord in this aspect that he was known to not be afraid of the faces of any man or woman that would come against him because the, the fear of the Lord just overshadowed all of that. He's like, all I really care to please, the only one, it's, it's the one audience that I have. Am I pleasing the Lord? Am I pleasing the Lord? So, so it's a solemn charge, you know? I, I, there's this solemn, get ready to do this because you're going to stand before the Lord, but it's also a simple charge. Look in verse 2. In its simplicity, it is preach the word. Got to love the exclamation point there. At least I do. Preach the word. This isn't hard to grasp. It's pretty easy for me to understand. You know, okay, there is a major charge here. And for the most part, I get where he's going with this. Preach the word, especially after having the end of chapter three there for us. Preach the word. It's straightforward. Timothy could get a hold of what was said immediately. So can you. So can I. Proclaim the word. Herald the word. Tell the word. This verse, I've been so excited since we started 1 Timothy. I've been so excited to get to this passage. 
because I remember being 19 years old, maybe 18, being in school of ministry in Corvallis, and we watched a video. Who doesn't love that? Those times in class, right? Watching a video. And it was from the Calvary Chapel Tucson Preach the Word conference that they do every year. And there was this guy that they had as a speaker, and his, he was Scottish, and his name was Alistair Begg, and he got up behind the pulpit, and there was this big, uh, a big poster in the front for the conference that said, Preach the Word! Exclamation point. And I, for the first time, I heard Alistair Begg preach. And he preached from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. And as an 18, 19-year-old kid, I, I found a guy that would be a father in the faith to me to this day. You know, I just, I love this man. I appreciate this man. And in 2014, early on in the year, I got to go to a conference in Cannon Beach where he was the speaker. And he walked through 2 Timothy verse by verse with us for four days. I mean, it was a highlight of my life, sitting with my dad in a sense, and hearing him teach from the very passage that had knit my heart to his. And I had this blessed uh, moment where uh, I ran into him and I asked him if he would eat dinner with me one night. And so he's like, yeah, sure. And so we brought him over and there was a group of pastors at the table. He came and sat down and and uh, I was like, hey, can I get you some coffee? And he says, oh, hey, you grab all their cups. I'll grab these guys' cups. And we'll go get the coffee together. I'm like, ah, you know. And so we're like walking to the coffee. And, and I'm like, hey, I just got to let you know. Like, since I was 18 years old, from the Preach the Word conference, you became like a father to me. And he goes like this. And I'm like, oh, I'm such an idiot, you know. <laughs> And he goes, I go, I know you hear that all the time. Who, you know, who am I to tell you that? He goes, no. He goes, you're making me feel old, you know, <laughs> that I'm your father. And then he's, you know, what's your name? I'm like, Rory Rogers. And he's like, I can remember that, lad. <laughs> and then I quoted a Starburst commercial, you know, where there's a, a, a Korean man with his son and they're in kilts. And, and the, they're eating Starburst together on their Scottish porch in the, the dad says to the son, you're a walking contradiction, you know? And I'm like, hey, Alistair, what do you think of that? Isn't that hilarious? And we laughed, you know? And I was like, throw another shrimp on the barbie, you know? And he's like, that's Australian. And so anyways, <laughs> uh, but I got to just share with him, you know, thank you. Thank you for being a man of the book that would preach the word faithfully and that would invest in young men like me and stir in my heart the same exhortation that I would be a man of the book and of the gospel, which, by the way, are one and the same. You know, and so there's a reason times that you hear me quote quite a bit from Alistair Begg, but he's just one of those guys, just a father in the faith that I just appreciate. Is he always right? No. Is he inerrant? No. Uh, but he's, he's a friend in a sense, as I would study under him. As he would be one like Paul who would discharge me to my duty and tell me to preach the word. Martin Luther was said, uh, has said concerning the Reformation that he was such a great part of. I simply taught and preached and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. I did nothing. The word did it all. 
I did nothing. I left it to the word. But it brings Satan distress when we only spread the word and let it alone to do the work. It brings Satan distress. And at the end of the day, we would be able to say, you know what? We gave the word of God. We gave the word of God. Back in chapter 2, verse 15, Paul tells Timothy to be diligent, to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And we studied that that word rightly dividing means to plow straight lines, to plow straight lines through the word, to be a man that is not afraid to dig in into the hard chapters, into the hard topics, and to press through. And we're going to see more when and how that might come to pass. The beautiful thing is, is that we can preach the word. It's not something we have to try to come up with week after week. Rather, it's been said it comes to us. It came down to us in the book. We don't come up with a message. It's not an invention on my part. Not something that I try to make up some sort of emphasis. You know, in preaching a sermon, and, and we tried to just really be cautious the last few weeks in this. You know, we don't just want to come and bring you some sort of new informational nugget of practical application that you can get notes on and then go home and have some sort of great conversation with your family or your home group. Now, those are wonderful things, but that's not the end of it all. When the preaching of the word of God is happening, it's when the word of God by the spirit of God comes to bear on the souls of the people of God. And he presses into them the conviction from the word of God and godly sorrow that brings repentance. And he conforms us into the image of Christ. That's what happens when the preaching of the word. This is something that actually goes beyond small group Bible study discussion and even in the home groups. When there's preaching taking place, the word of God is used by the spirit of God to bring to bear the heart of God on the people of God. And he does a work of changing us in it. Macon says, it is with the open Bible that the real Christian preacher comes before the congregation. He does not come to present his opinions. He does not come to present his research on the phenomena of religion but he comes to set forth what is contained in the word of God so that what God has spoken to the apostles has been bequeathed to us in the Bible so that we, like Timothy, are to preach the word and nothing but the word. As Christopher Ash wrote, preaching is something that is culturally neutral. In the sense that we can go anywhere and preach the gospel and people are aware that they're to listen to preaching. And so not only is it something that really any man can be equipped to do, but it's something that any person could hear and to listen. It gives place for the word of God to be spoken. One man named Sanctor was a famous Methodist preacher who died in the 1950s. And at the end of his life, he grieved over the fact that, quote, preaching is in the shadows. The world does not believe it. 
And yet in 2018, going into 2019, we may do well to say preaching is in the shadows. The church does not believe. The church has adopted the culture of our world even today and saying that I don't need to go to church. I can spend time out here in the mountains. Whether I'm cutting down trees or riding my horse or riding my motorcycle or or fishing or hunting, and, and I just use that because that's pretty culturally relevant to us, right? I think so, okay? And I've heard it so many times in this culture that I don't go, I don't need to be there in the church setting where the preaching of the word happens. Why would I when I've got all of this? Now, in a sense, we get what he means, right? Because which one of us doesn't enjoy a nature walk or a nature ride in a time of prayer on the steed, you know? We enjoy those times as well, but that is not to replace the preaching and the hearing of the word of God. And I hope that you, Prineville Christians, have an answer to that man or woman as to why that is not adequate. It is not adequate to just go to the mountains and find God. If it were... Why do we spend so much time with an organization invested in translating the Bible into various Nepali languages when they're already in the mountains? They're already in the biggest mountains. If anything, they've got to be closer to God than anybody else. And you know what? They've thought of that. And you know what it's brought them? Demonism on every level. Bondage and death with zero hope. Because nature is not sufficient in and of itself. We've studied that the few, last few weeks. We need the word of God. We need it taught, expounded upon, someone to give the sense. And we need it preached. We need the Holy Spirit to bring it to bear on our hearts. And so how is this to be done? First of all, consistently we're to be ready in season and out by we i'm talking about me okay so first of all sit back and relax while i talk to myself and the elders and any other guys gifted in preaching being raised up how do we do this preaching the word well consistently and as you're listening by the way these are marks that you want in your pastor these are marks that you want in your church the word preached consistently how it says be ready in season and out of season. It's a verb, epistemi. It means to stand near something and be ready for an imminent attack. Stand by, in a sense. Be ready or be on hand. A preacher is to always be on duty. Always be ready to give a message of the gospel. And Philip's translation puts it, never lose your sense of urgency in regards to the preaching and teaching of the word of God. Let your ministry be known for readiness, not laziness. Readiness, not laziness. Preach the word, Timothy, whether it's received with receptivity or hostility. Preach the word when the idea of preaching fills you with delight or perhaps it will fill you with dread. 
you know, for the most part, the thought fills me with delight. But there's times when it can be rough. You know, it's a tough message. You know, it might be controversial. You know, it's that hot button issue. Maybe it divides the congregation. You must go forward prayerfully. The power of the Holy Spirit, not with wisdom of words, lest we would make the cross of Christ of no effect, but by demonstration of the Spirit and of power in the good times and in the bad. The New English Bible says, press the message home in all occasions, whether it's convenient or inconvenient. There's no excuse for fearfulness. There's no excuse for laziness. We preach the word, whether you guys are tuned in or tuned out. Sometimes we can tell. So think about that, you know. Either fake it, be like, oh, this is, you know, just work on that head, Bob. That's all we really need, okay? Keep preaching the word. When the crowd is growing or the congregation is shrinking, the size of a congregation isn't the measurement that we use on whether or not we'll stay true to the word of God, teaching and preaching. And so it's a simple charge. It's a solemn charge. And it's easy to see it's unusual for a man to continue preaching the Bible in many congregations. It's also to be done not only consistently, good times and bad, summer and winter, springtime and harvest, preach the word. You're going to get it here. But also, it's to be done pastorally. In the preaching, there's, there's those times of convincing, notice it says. The word convince means to expose, convict, even rebuke. So rebuke is kind of weaved throughout this pastorally here. And so, convince in the preaching. By the way, Come with a heart willing to be convinced. Like spend Saturday nights like, Lord, whatever you have for me tomorrow. That doesn't mean just be, be led blindly. All right. Of course, we want you to be a Berean. Search the scriptures. See if these things are so. But God has you coming here where we endeavor to just bring the book to you. And so have you heard the latest thing, you know, some of the Stephen Crowders and the guys like that where they have their, their table out, you know, in a university or something, and it just says, you know, let's just say, for instance, um, abortion is killing a living human. Convince me I'm wrong, you know. It's just like, hey, good open times of dialogue. And perhaps you would be able to come and say, hey, convince me. Convince me from the word, pastor. I want to be changed. I want to be conformed into the image of Christ. So show me how from the Bible. Rebuke. And the Lord says to us in his resurrection, in his resurrected state, in Revelation 3.19, that as many as he loves, he rebukes and he chastens. It's no, it's no surprise here as we go through the word that rebuke is actually something that's a loving thing. It's a loving thing. And it shows that you are a legitimate child when you're rebuked as a father does his son. There's to be exhortation. Exhorting often means to spur someone on. Those of you that ride much on the, on the horses, you get to those creeks and that, 
that young, you know, training up green broke horse doesn't like to cross it. And so you do your thing and eventually you, you put some spur motivation in. The pastor has to do the same thing with the congregation. Dig the spurs in. Urging people, imploring people, asking earnestly to the people, encouraging the people. Now this exhortation should always accompany the rebuke, okay? Donald Guthrie said to rebuke without instruction is to leave the root cause of the error untouched. And so we rebuke, but we also instruct and encourage and exhort. Paul is very good at illustrating this in his letters where to the first, to the, to the first Corinthians, who are also the second Corinthians, in case you're wondering, uh, he, it's a rebuke. It's like, hey, should I come with the rod and spank your little booties, you know? Like, it's correction. You know, Galatians, correction. Rebuke for failure to continue in the gospel of grace. While the, the Corinthians, man, they are immoral in their behavior. But you also speak encouragement in those letters with Notice it says, with all long-suffering and teaching. And so the preaching is to be done consistently, pastorally, and patiently. Phillips translates that use the utmost patience in your teaching. Maybe you got an NIV Bible with you today, and you'll bear with me as it says, with great patience and careful instruction. And so we keep patiently at it. There will never be a time that one should stop preaching the word of God. No matter the feel of the temperature in the room or in the environment, a pastor is to be the thermostat setting the heat of the congregation with the preaching of the word. He's never to be the thermometer bending and flexing with any whim of the congregation. Preach the word in season and out and do it with a long-suffering dedication that can be difficult because sanctification when the christian is being conformed into that christ likeness it's a slow process sometimes it's a slow painstaking effort sometimes you see quick fruit sometimes the fruit is years in the making so keep at it and verse three tells us why or something to be prepared for. And this begins to overlap with a bit of Aaron's teaching last week. I asked him to speak from this passage because I know that he has nearly a, a prophetic heart of comforting and encouraging our culture uh, that lives in the day and age of verse 3 and 4. As it says that the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears. They will heap up for themselves teaching. And so there's going to be an era where the people hearing the preaching cannot be patient with it. They cannot accept it. They cannot bear with it because it is healthy teaching. Because it's sound teaching. The people want more of the novelty than the orthodoxy. Now, I'm a guy that loves a good joke. I'm a guy that loves humor. And yet, for some reason, walking through the mall, you guys have a mall or, no, 
I used to live in Corvallis. There was a mall in Albany. So, and there was a store in the mall that was a novelty store. You guys know those stores, right? You know, it's got the, the plastic dog poop, you know, that you can like trick people with, you know, or like the life-size cardboard cutout of Sylvester Stallone or whatever. And it, as a guy that loves a good joke, love goofing around, I never could go in that store. It was just too out there for me. Lacking so much seriousness. And I think it's the same way with, with people's treatment of their spirituality. They're looking for something that will ooh and awe them rather than something that will benefit them eternally. And the things that ooh and awe are so often the very same things that will lead detrimentally to an eternity of perishing. And so we look not for novelty, but for serious things, for orthodox things. It's interesting as you study this that the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They'll have itching ears. They'll heap up for themselves false teachers. He's not talking about the non-Christians out there in the culture. The context is these are people within the church. The time will come that as you're preaching the word in the church that people just can't take it anymore. Stop giving me sound doctrine. Give me a bit of something that'll tickle my ears. Dance, monkey, dance, you know. And so the pastor dances. There's a direct correlation between teaching a different doctrine and then the, the living of different lifestyles. Belief and behavior are inseparable. And in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, what I would call the key verse of the whole book, it says, hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the spirit who dwells in us. So what would really be the key verse of the book? What is Paul trying to get across to Timothy. Well, it's his final letter. He's about to die. He's passing off the baton. And if I can give you just one major point, Timothy, as I'm giving it over to you, it's keep the good deposit. Guard the good deposit. The word of God, the gospel, don't compromise. And if you go back to the last book, to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, we won't read it tonight, uh, this morning, whatever it is, for the sake of time. Those individuals that do not keep the word, we are to withdraw ourselves. Why? Because they are a group of people who, in our verse right now, are you there with me? According to their own desires. They follow their own desires. And it speaks of a deep desire. It speaks of a craving and a lust. Something that James tells us in the first chapter, each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, which when it is full grown brings forth death. So what do we know of people who in their spiritual appetites 
are just running after their own desires and lusts and cravings. It is sinful. It leads to death. And it drags populations away with it. The prophets speak of these times as well, back in Isaiah chapter 30. That this is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord, who say to the seers, by the way, a seer is like a prophet, do not see. And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things, speak to us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from us. Or the way Jeremiah puts it. An astonishing and horrible thing has been committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. And the priests rule by their own power. And my people love to have it so. And it's the state of much of the church today. Stop it, preacher. Stop preaching the word. Stop talking about sin and immorality and our rebellion and our need for a savior. Can you just tell me something that'll build me up? Tell me something that'll just tell me I'm okay right where I'm at. Give me something that'll help me sleep at night, but that won't require me to have to repent at all. To acknowledge that I've stumbled, that I've sinned, that I've offended God. In fact, take God out of it. Take the whole story of the, the suffering servant out. Ooh, blood, come on. We're progressives. Let's not talk about blood. Let's not talk about a curse. Let's not talk about a fall. Tickle my ears, man. It says they have itching ears. We can all like relate, right? There's nothing worse than an inner ear itch, right? Where you just got to like get the pressure thing going in there and like get the air to like touch the itch you could go from this side but who's got time for that itching ears man a figure of speech for curiosity that looks for spicy hints of information man scratch that itch it's the back rub you know it's the little back claws like right right there right there you know people have that that itch scratch it preacher man Guthrie says it literally means having their ears tickled as if what they heard merely scratched their eardrums without going further, course to their heart. The New American Standard Bible puts it, wanting to have their ears tickled, they heaped up for themselves an accumulated teacher. So desires with itching ears means that these people, even within the church, they're going to just heap up for themselves teachers. I love what someone said at our home group this week. Like, don't you see this totally happens nowadays where just people have access to just any and every teacher that you could ever want or not want? And not only that, you only have to listen to like a one minute sound bite or video and like you think you're done for the week. How quickly we can heap up for ourselves. We can do it on YouTube. We can click it into a saved playlist. We just heap up teachers. We lose a commitment to a local church with elders who have been appointed to guard and protect and tend us and feed us. And we just say, man, who needs that? Way too much commitment, way too much time. Man, just give me the, give me the YouTube pastor. Or go from church to church. Just tickle my ears. 
so that it could suit my desires. It's been said when people don't believe the truth of God's word, they don't stop believing in anything. They start believing in everything. There are times when you just see this and are astounded that it's happening. I was around many Christians this week from many denominations. And there were many clerical collars around many necks. Bishops, priests, and priestesses. And you would think that that's, that's not a big issue. Well, the world thinks that. Many in our culture think that. Oh, you know, like, sure, God says that I do not permit a man to teach or to have authority over a woman, and we've been through this. But that was, you know, the, the cultural, the girls weren't educated, and so they couldn't. And, and I'm just going to go ahead and, like, strip that out of the Bible because I don't like it. And the hunch is that as you strip that out, many other things follow. And I saw it with my own eyes this week. As I spoke with these priestesses, telling my story, one of them told me, oh, God just has such a sense of humor. She'll just take you here and she'll take you there. And gosh, she's just wonderful. Merker, merker. <laughs> So if I go back <laughs> to this part, and so, okay. Oh, I was just, I retired from being a teacher and, and just didn't know what to do with my top, my downtime. So I went to seminary. And now I'm a leading pastor in the area. And you know what? It's true. We don't really know what we're doing. In fact, the only thing that I can stake my claim on is, you know, that Jesus is God and that he rose from the dead. And so it doesn't matter if there was a virgin birth. It doesn't matter, you know, you know what, what, uh, what's going to happen in the end. People go to heaven or hell, if there's a hell. And you're just watching the erosion of the authority of the word of God upon our culture, but it's a tale as old as time. When there isn't the preaching of the authoritative word of God, then everything goes sideways. And as much as we want to think we can all just get along and commune together, you turn the next page, and you realize that they've also thrown that out. And they've also thrown that out. We will not adapt to our culture with our theology and our behavior. By the spirit of God and by the grace of God, we will take the Bible and we will 
tell the good news of the story of what Christ has done. And we will pray that the Spirit of God will conform the culture around us to the standard that he's given us. And that in doing so, the whole world will know of the beauty of his love and his grace that is deeper than we could even make up and fabricate. That it's much more thoughtful, much more loving, because it confronts error. And that is what true love does. It rebukes. It exhorts. But it is long-suffering. And it is patient. Verse 4 says, They will turn their ears away from the truth, and they will be turned aside to fables. It speaks of a sprain. A sprain that causes someone to wander after legends and counterfeits. One professor named Dick Lucas used to go before his students in preaching school and draw a line. I've got a picture of it. He used to draw a line on a whiteboard and say, what do you guys think? And the students used to say, hey, that's a nice line. And then he would draw an arrow on the upside of the line and say, this is the Bible plus anything. The line itself was biblical authority and biblical instruction. And as the line went off to the north or to the, the upside, not on my geography right now, you've got your axes, you've got your, you know, whatever, you guys know. The upper arrow was the Bible plus anything, which would be legalism, which would be fanaticism, and on the other side of the main line was liberal understanding. No Bible. Take away from the Bible. And Lucas would tell his people, hey, hold the line. Hold the line. Stay the course. Preach the word. Worship team, will you come on up? William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army was asked what the, the main danger was that would cause the church to stumble. And he said, you know, he was back in like, he was lived from 1829 up to 1915. And so he lived in that era. And he said, the chief, chief danger that confronts the coming century will be religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. And we see it generations later. And so the conclusion to Timothy in this paragraph is, but you, Timothy, be watchful in all things. It speaks of be cool-headed, be sober-minded. As you're making disciples, be strong in the grace because you're going to need to endure affliction, he says. Be cool-headed, endure affliction, even happened to me again this week, you know, happens, happens to us, but you start opening up your mouth about the truth of God 
and you're going to start getting arrows fired back, okay? And the more publicly you do it, the more publicly those arrows come flying back. So just get ready to endure affliction. Do the work of an evangelist. Be someone who preaches the gospel. Evangelism is work. So roll your sleeves up, put your work boots on, lace them up tight every morning, and get ready to go out, whether it's your gift or not. It's been said that either you evangelize or you fossilize. Preach the gospel. Fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your commission. Let's pray.